We are, uh, we're glad you're here. If you're here for the first time, we again want to reiterate how honored we are to have you in worship with us. It is a great pleasure um, to have you here this morning. We are uh, into week 33 of what is going to be a long journey to the book of Acts, but I have uh, thoroughly enjoyed it simply because it's, it's been uh, refreshing to my heart to think about our context of church and what it means for us, not only as a church to follow Christ, but for me as a, as a follower of Christ to truly live out that call. I've been telling you since we began that the book of Acts is not really a story, it's a call. It's an invitation of Jesus Christ to the Christ follower into the world. Uh, as we gather together, it's the invitation to the church, but as you live as a follower of Jesus, it's your invitation, your call into the world. And so on some level, it is the most important book that we see in the gospel once we surrender our lives to Christ, because it's the book that we use as the call to follow the Holy Spirit into the world. And so it really defines who we are as believers and as a church. <clears throat> and over the past 32 weeks, we have gone through some of the most intense and amazing situations and relationships. We've seen heartache and hurt. We've seen the gospel prepared. We've seen the gospel preached. We've seen people die. We've seen difficult things. And and what we began in chapter 13 was the mission movement of the church. So three weeks ago, we saw the mission movement begin. The fulfillment of the Great Commission that Jesus himself called the disciples to go to all the nations and to baptize and to teach and to do all that that happens in Matthew 28. That's echoed in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus is being ascended into heaven and he looks at those followers of his, that little small group of 100 people, and he says, listen, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the very ends of the earth. That becomes the kind of, bring, or that brings about this mission movement that begins in Acts 13. In Acts 13, we see Paul and Barnabas being sent off by the church into the world, right? And we explored three weeks ago that they started that journey by sailing and they landed on the island of Cyprus and their missionary journey began by walking 90 miles across this island and having encounters with people as they went into the various cities and proclaimed the word of God. And they got all the way to the west end of the aisle and they had this encounter with the leader, right? Uh, Sergius Paulus, the leader of the entire island. And he came to know Christ and there was this, this sort of uh, magician that didn't want it to happen. And so we had this whole miracle thing where that guy went blind and the leader came to know the Lord. And the whole island almost came to believe the Lord. And they praised God and we, we celebrated that. And then a few weeks ago we saw them leave that island and uh, sail again. Another some odd miles and land and go 100 miles over the mountain to Antioch. And not Antioch that we saw in Syria, but Antioch and Poseidon. And we saw them land there and they began just by preaching the word. So they went all the way inland into Galatia, into the, this sort of capitalistic region of a military conquest. It was part of a, the Roman Empire and they had all the military there and we explored all that and we talked about it. And they go into the temple where the Jewish people gathered and that what they call the God-fears, which are people that were not Jews by birth, but had come to trust in the God of the Jews, in Yahweh, and so they worshiped in the temple. And, and Barnabas and Paul went to the temple on the Sabbath, and they listened. They sat there and they listened as, as the leaders read from the law, and they read from the prophets. And when they had finished, the leader stood up and he said, Does anybody here have a word of encouragement for the people? And a few weeks ago when Carson was preaching, he talked about how Paul launched into this most complete message, top to bottom, that we have recorded in the book of Acts, where Paul shares the gospel story and God's redemptive plan, right? 
And then last week, I kind of wrapped it all up, and we explored the major themes that were in there from the sin or the, the rotten nature of sin that we have in all of us and the power of the resurrection, the beauty of the true gospel. Well, all that comes to a close today. He finishes his sermon, and we're going to pick up looking about at what happens once Paul and Barnabas leave church, essentially, leave the temple. So what takes place after they proclaim this powerful gospel message in the middle of this place where there is no gospel? What does it look like when they do life in those places? And I think it's going to impact or it's going to have a radical impact on how we think about church in general. And I'm, I'm kind of excited about what God is, is doing in this passage. And so we're going to take it a little bit different. And I'll tell you about that in a moment. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open to uh, Acts 13, chapter 13. And we are going to be at the very end, 42 through 52. We're going to wrap up the chapter um, this morning. So before we do that, before we dive into it, let's uh, pray as always and ask God to reveal truth to us and to speak to our hearts, uh, for we know that he is ultimately the revealer of truth. So let's, let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is living and active. I thank you, God, that we cannot open its pages and discover you. That, God, only you can reveal yourself, only you can reveal your spirit, only you can reveal truth. And so, God, we come this morning imploring you to teach our hearts. God, we gather in this place knowing that your word is not a subjective tool by which we can apply our lives, but God, it is the very standard of truth that governs all things. Lord, we pray that you would help us see it that way. That God, you would speak and move in us in a way that draws us closer to you, challenges our understanding and thoughts about church and about life and about mission and about evangelism and about everything. Just turn our worlds upside down. Take a moment in your own heart just before we dive into God's word and ask him to teach you this morning. It doesn't really even matter what that sounds like to anybody else. Just between you and the Lord, just ask God to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment and pray for somebody else. Be in the habit of praying for other people. We talk about this each week. Pray that God would move in them. Lord, I pray that as we open your word, you would be glorified, you would be exalted. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. So Paul has preached this sermon that takes up the majority of Acts chapter 13. He has walked this group of people through the entire picture of God's redemptive history, from the patriarchs all the way to the person of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection, and he has wrapped up this Speech, And now we get to see how people react and how Paul begins to live in that area where he's not from, in that area that they're just visiting, in those moments outside of the temple. So we're going to pick up in verse 42 as Paul and Barnabas are together leaving the synagogue. Verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them, and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the entire city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they talked abusively against what Paul was saying. And then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now 
return to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. And they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet and protested against them and went to Iconium. And, then, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So Paul preaches this complete sermon. I mean, this sort of only complete sermon that we have of all five-ish messages that he preaches in Acts. This is the one from top to bottom that we seem to have the entirety of. And he preaches this to this gathered group of people in the, uh, in the synagogue, and he wraps it up, right? And as he's leaving and the congregation is dismissed, a bunch of people come up to him and they begin to walk with him as they're leaving. And they're asking him all kinds of questions, and they're urging him to come back next week. And Paul speaks to them, and he encourages them to keep following the Lord as they leave and as they walk to it, wherever it is that they're going. Well, the next week when they get back, it says that almost the entire city was gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now, this is really remarkable because, right, the synagogue was in the middle of this Roman colony. This was not a Jewish city. Yet the word had spread so significantly, the entire city came to the synagogue to hear what it was that Paul and Barnabas were saying. And it says that the crowds were, were deeply moved, but when the Jews saw how many people were there, they were jealous. They were jealous. And they spoke abusively against the things that Paul and Barnabas were saying, right? Because all these crowds were gathered listening to these guys' words. And so they spoke abusively about it, or, or whatever you want that word to mean, like hate with hatred in them. Right? They spoke with hatred towards the things that they were saying. Right? And they, they stirred up all kinds of things. And so Paul and Barnabas speak boldly. They, they, they don't stop. They speak boldly and they say, listen, we had to bring this message to you first. Right? Because this message is the message of restoration and redemption that was given first to you. And now we proclaim it to the Gentiles because you didn't think you were worthy of it. They look at the Gentiles and they say, we were called by the Lord to tell you this message so that you might have salvation and eternal life. And the Gentiles were excited. They were glad, and they honored the Lord. It says that all who were appointed to eternal life believed. But the Jewish people were still angry, right? And so what they did was they stirred up the leading men and women in the city. They got them all fired up. And they had Paul and Barnabas kicked out of the entire region, even though these incredible things were happening. So Paul and Barnabas dust kind of shake the dust off their, their, uh, their shoes figuratively and, and protest and say, fine. We'll go. What we're left there in verse 52 is that the disciples that were there, right, were filled with joy and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And chapter 13 come, comes to a close and they move on to the next city. Now it seems like a normal interaction, right? It seems like an interaction that we would see happening in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas going to a city, proclaiming the word of the Lord. People reject it. They kind of say, okay, fine, up to you. They leave and God still does something amazing. I mean, it's a template for what we see in these missionary journeys. They show up, they proclaim, the people can't stand it, some people are saved, God does an amazing work, and they move on to the next town. At least that's what we think we see. But what I see in this text is something much different. And I want to take a little bit of an altered view this morning to do a little bit something, or a little something different than what we would normally do. Not a lot different, just a, a little different, because I want to look at it from a different angle. 
Now, those of you that have been coming to church with us for any given period of time, however long that may be, or however short that may be, you may know or probably know that I have a, a quite a tension or a wrestle with our Western concept of institutional church, right? I have a, a, a tension that rages inside of me about the methodology in which we think about the gospel and programming. I have a wrestle that kind of pushes against our common definitions of mission and evangelism and things that run those lines. Because I think those definitions in our institutional church are are often inward focused. They're focused on the survival or relevance or maintenance or growth of ourselves. They're focused on how we can get people into chairs, how we can do things, and how we can sort of program ourselves into categories that support our values and mission structures and things like that. The reality is, is that it's just how we're wired as a Western culture. We're results-driven. But the gospel, when I read it and I see it in Scripture, I don't see it happening according to methodologies. I don't see it happening according to comfortable spaces and things. I don't see it happening in those frameworks that say, come visit us where we are in our space, in our place, so that we can show you the God that has changed us. I see a gospel that is sent by the Holy Spirit into the world and that takes place in the messy places in the world. That doesn't fit into our comfortable spaces, our comfortable paradigms. That doesn't fit into our definitions programmatically of church and mission and evangelism so that we can tie everything up in a neat little bow. I see a gospel that pushes against our modern understanding of church with our coffee bars and our rock climbing walls and our our light shows and our orchestras and our praise bands and all the things that are geared toward the experience of attendees. I see churches, including ours at times, that are are proclaiming numbers to to give an experience to the attendee so so we will say it's worth coming here. So I've got this tension that wrestles inside of me because I see the picture of the gospel. And I'm not saying that there aren't places for those things. I'm just saying so often we've exchanged those things for what we see happening and unfolding in Scripture. And what I see happening here is remarkable. What I see happening here is a picture of the gospel and a picture of mission and evangelism that redefines what we're doing as a church. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to lift up some things, and there's actually eight of them, and I'm going to go through them really quickly, that are laid out in this text that should change our paradigms about evangelism and mission and life and church forever. And not just in terms of how we do it or how somebody else does it, but how you live it, because really these things are your call. They're not your call to look at your church and say, my church should do this better. The reality is you are the church, and this should be our moment And how we live together, right? So this is where I want to go this morning because it's laid out in a way that if we just look at it, it will change everything. And I think you'll begin to see, hopefully, who I believe we're called to be as a church and as individuals. And it will change the way that we think about life. So what I need you to do is just take all of your preconceived understandings of words like mission and evangelism. um, And I need you to just sort of put them aside for a moment because we're going to reconstruct them a little bit with what we see coming out of the hearts and lives of Paul and Barnabas. The first thing that we see happens immediately after Paul and Barnabas leave the the synagogue, right? And I call this the living in the in-between. So the first thing that we're called to do as followers of Christ, as a church, is that we are called to live in the in-between. Look at what happens when Paul and Barnabas leave. 
in verse 43, right? They, the church has been dismissed, and they are moving on, right? So as they are leaving, and the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. The reason I call this the life in the in-between is because it's what takes place between Paul's big sermon on, on the Sabbath and his being invited back the next week. See, most of us keep our church in its categories. Our church stuff happens on Sunday, somewhere between 10.30 and a little bit before noon, and we'll revisit again the next week. Or if the church sanctions an event, Wednesday night or a live group or whatever, then it takes place in that place also. But life in the in-between takes place where we see Paul and Barnabas. As the congregation is dismissed, they're walking with people down the road. People come up and they say, tell us more, explain it to us, tell us what's going on. And Paul and Barnabas engage in their life and they encourage them to continue to walk in the Lord. Life in the in-between is where things happen. It's where life happens. It's where we spend time with our neighbors and our coworkers. It's where we get coffee with people and lunch with people. It's where we speak into them, where we open up our homes instead of walled off fortresses to the things that we own. They become centers of hospitality to the people around us. We invite them into those categories to say, do life with me. Life happens. Ministry happens in between Sunday and Sunday. We tend to think that ministry takes place when we gather in this place or when we hold a church in the park. That is your green light to invite the world. Wrong. Your green light to invite the world is when Jesus saved you. And you are called to invite the world into your life, to step step into the cracks and crevices of theirs and do life in uncomfortable, difficult, messy places that aren't defined or sanctioned by church culture. The truth is, is that life and ministry take place in the in-between. Very little of your ministry as a follower of Christ will take place in this space from 10.30 to noon on Sunday. All of your ministry, 99.9% of it personally will take place outside of this building in life when you do it in the in-between with people. If you're not doing life in-between with people, if you're not getting to know their names and their stories and their histories and their lives, if you're not inviting them into your world, then what are we really doing as Christ followers? Inviting them simply to come and sit in this space and take up a chair? Look, they're going to come and hear me say a few things, and they're going to sing, and that's going to be great, but they could do that in a thousand places. What people are hungering for is authenticity, and they're hungering for relationship, and they're hungering to be known and restored. And this becomes the call, the Christ Father, that we are called to live in the in-between. What we see Paul and Barnabas doing is living in the in-between. You know what Paul doesn't say when the crowd comes up and says, they start walking with them as they're leaving? He doesn't say, hey, chill out, we'll be back next week. Just bring your friends and family, we're going to preach that same thing again. No, he walks with them, and he urges them to continue in the grace of God. Who knows where they walked to, or how long they walked, or what that means, but the point is, it was between Sabbath and Sabbath, Sabbath, between Sunday and Sunday. We are called to live in the in-between. We are also called, and the second thing I want you to do, we're also called to always go back. So Paul and Barnabas lived in such a way that they got invited back. And guess what they did the next week? They went back. Now really what I'm talking about when I say always go back is really more about living life with intentionality. Returning to places. Relation, ministry is built on relationship, and relationship is built on trust. You know how you develop trust with people? You return to their lives. 
You know their names. You begin to hear their life stories. You begin to ask questions into their life. We are called to go back and return to the lives of people. So here's what I'm saying. When you think about how busy your life is, how task-driven you are, how many things you are trying to accomplish in one single day, right? What if we made intentional movements to return to the same places so that we saw the same people, so we begin to learn their names? Whether it was the barista at Starbucks, whether it was the bank teller or the, the person that checked you out at the grocery store, what if you stood in the same line? It had three more people in it, but that same girl, that same guy runs a checkout stand every single week at the grocery store. And so instead of being driven to try and get out, you continue to go back so that you can learn their name, to read their name tag, to ask them how they're doing, to develop some system of trust by which one day you might be used by God to speak love into their life. What if you return to those places? What if that same route that you drove home every single day with that same guy that sat on the same corner and you acted like you never saw What if one day you took six seconds to roll down your window and ask him his name and hand him your sandwich? Even if he doesn't want it, he's not going to starve without it. But the intentionality was to say, what is your name? Because he has one, and I guarantee you almost no one knows it. We are called to live lives that go back. We are so driven by our doing and our accomplishing and our moving through tasks that we only fall into relationships with people that happen to continue to cross our paths. I'm talking about being intentional with everyone. Yeah, it's a little inconvenient to continue to return. But when you do so, and you go back the next week, and you look that person in the eye, and you call them by their name that you remembered, it speaks value to them. I can't believe this guy or this girl came back into the same restaurant sat at the same table or asked to sit in the same section so that the same waiter could wait on them so they could speak their name to them and tell them they were good to see them. Paul and Barnabas lived in a way that they got invited back and they returned, right? Sounds a little tongue-in-cheek, but the truth is, it's intentional. How do you live with intentionality in your own life? Think about the people you go through every day that you don't even know their name, much less give them the dignity by looking them in the eye that day. Part of living a life of ministry outside of Sunday to Sunday and the in-between is living with that intentionality. So be a person that always goes back, right? As you go through your office, say hello to the people. Look them in the eye, the receptionist, the whoever, that person that has that cubicle in the far corner. Walk the long way. Be intentional. So we live in the in-between. We always go back. Verse 45 says this, says, on the next Sabbath, almost a whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. When you live this way, you live in the middle with intentionality and the in-between. When you go back, it won't always be pretty. There will be people in your life, even when you're kind, even when you go out of your way, even when you try and engage them, that will speak abusively, with hatred, with anger. They will just flat out be mean. Sometimes those people will be mean and they will be friends. Sometimes they will be friends of friends. Sometimes they will be your kids' friends, parents. Sometimes they will be your family. The reality is is that when you live in a way that puts your life and heart out there, not everyone is going to look at it and say, I'm grateful. Some are going to be threatened. Some don't even want to hear what you have to say. Some are just going to be mean because our culture is riddled with sinful brokenness. So don't let 
that sort of unprettiness, if you will, be means for rejection. But let it be means to continue to live this way. See, what Paul and Barnabas did is as they went back, it wasn't pretty. The very people they went to speak to spoke abusively about the things they were saying. It's a very strong word about the things they were saying. And most likely it has a personal connotation to it. So not only were they talking about what they were preaching, but they were talking about themselves. People are going to say awful things about you. They're going to make up rumors and lies. This is life. It is what it is. It's not a reason to disengage with humanity. But it's a reason to find your self-esteem and your security in who Christ is and not what the world says. I remember the first time I, well, it was the first time. It was one of several times I took a mission team of college kids overseas. We were going to El Salvador or Peru or somewhere, and we were in Houston. We were spending a few days before we flew out, and we were doing some inner city work. And we've been talking about homelessness and engaging people and reaching out to them and loving them and being extensions. And I had this young man, a freshman in, in college, and, uh, you know, we, we had talked about getting to know people, and we pulled up at the streetlight, and he says, hey, there is a guy sitting in the corner. We're in downtown Houston. And he said, I want to get out, and I want to give him my granola bar, and I want to ask him his name. You know, I would just gone through, and we worked. I said, man, do it. So we open up the gates of the little short bus we were on. He runs around the front, and he goes, hey, man. And there's traffic everywhere, right? Probably shouldn't let him do it, but we did anyway. Ran up, and he goes, hey, man, I want to give you my granola bar. And the guy looked at him, and he goes, I got like 500 of those. <laughs> and he stopped in the street, he goes, all right. And so he gets back on the bus, and he was all dejected, and I was like, well, man, he got like 500 of them. He doesn't need that granola bar. He's like, but I was just, I go, I recognize the intention, right? I want to get out. I want to make contact. I want to, but he didn't need that, nor did he want it. That's going to happen when you live in the in-between, right? When you reach out to people, you're going to be rejected. It's going to take time and time and time again for you to step into the lives of people, and not just somebody who might be homeless, but people, friendships, before they trust you enough to realize that you're not going to bail on them. It's not always going to be pretty. So don't give up. That fourth one falls in that category. Don't fall into fear. So what happens when they speak abusively against what Paul is saying? Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. See, we are all going to have voices in our life. We're going to have voices that speak hatred, and we're going to have voices that speak vehement things. We're going to have voices that speak lies and untruth. And the more we begin to live the gospel, the more we begin to live in the in-between, the more you begin to love people in that redemptive, restorative way that God has loved you, the louder the voices will become. And they will try and deter you, and they will speak against you. And the important thing is that you can't fall in fear, because fear is, it's, uh, it's seizing. Fear causes us to want to withdraw into ourselves. Fear isn't always that thing that causes us to run. Sometimes fear just causes us to shrink. And you get rejected enough, and, and, and eventually what do you do? You just quit. Because I'm tired of putting myself out there and having people push back and reject me, and so I just am done. Right? That's our nature, to protect ourselves at all costs. And after I get burned a time or two, or after I reach out and keep getting ignored or send an invitation to all these people just to have lunch with me or whatever, and no one says yes, eventually I quit. And we just fall in fear, not because I give up, because I'm tired of being rejected. And I'm going to now protect my heart. Right? I'm going to guard it. I'm going to guard it closely and not let that happen to me again. So as Paul and Barnabas are being spoken abusively to and personally with hatred and, and all those things that are going on, it just says that they spoke 
and answer them boldly. They didn't take it personally. They just spoke boldly the truth. This is not uncommon for what we see these missionaries and first century followers of Christ doing. In the middle of challenge, they didn't fall to fear. They just spoke boldly. We don't see them getting angry. We don't see them trying to get retaliation. We don't see them trying to affect the poor views. We just see them speaking the same truth again with boldness. If you're anything like me, there's probably voices in your life right now. Sometimes they come from the enemy inside your own head. Right? Sometimes they're spoken clearly by the enemy. Sometimes they're spoken by the people that you love the most. But they hurt and they sting. Don't fall in fear. When you begin to live in the in-between with intentionality, when you begin to do this, those voices will grow louder. Because when ministry happens, when we begin to be about gospel restoration, right, it rises up against everything that is culturally significant and everything the enemy will do, or the enemy will do everything he can to come in opposition to it. As it happens, don't fall in fear, right? Speak boldly. Let's keep going. So we've got this proclamation of speaking boldly. Don't fall in fear. Look at verse 46 and 47. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We speak to you the word, the word to you first, since you reject it. And do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. Now, Paul's talking to the Jewish people. He's saying, look, this is you. You are in the lineage of Christ. You are God's chosen people. This message is first to you for redemption, right? But you didn't count yourselves worthy of eternal life or of what God had promised you. And so now we turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Right? Now, listen to what the Gentiles say. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord. Part of living this way means remembering who you are. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't do anything to deserve God's grace. You didn't live some great moral life. You're not some perfect person. The reality is that God rescued you on no doing of your own. And as we talked about last week, you are broken and sinful and rotten to the core, and so am I. And God in his infinite, perfect, amazing grace takes the initiative with humanity steps into it and rescues you, right? Part of the struggle culturally with Christianity is that what people see, what the world sees, are Christians that are judgmental and hypocritical, that stand on what is time some, it seems like a subjective moral high horse, and they proclaim judgment on the world, because most people don't have a problem with God, even with Christianity, or Jesus for that matter. They have a problem with Christians, and they see them as judgmental, and hypocritical. And they see them as wavering in their moral standards to the world and not applying those same standards to themselves. And for the most part, they're right. And it doesn't mean that culturally we become tolerant morally, right? But it means that we remember who we are. Most of us are proclaiming a moral standard for other people that we refuse to acknowledge as deteriorating in our own lives. And we pass of social media and things proclaiming things on the world and yet have even recognized the brokenness and deep sin rift in our own life. What people want to experience, and I think what the world is dying to hear, is that we are broken, sinful. The Gentiles didn't care that they didn't have some kind of family lineage that led them to God. They were just grateful. They were lost without him. And yet he, in his own power and nothing on their own, stepped in and saved them. Right? Paul says that, that he has made you a light for the Gentiles, Paul, and that you will bring salvation to them. And what were they? They were glad. 
Like they weren't mad. They weren't frustrated. They were just glad. The main problem with most of us, in all honesty, is that we don't remember who we are. We think that somehow we've got some kind of religious entitlement or that we've lived a little bit, little bit morally better than the drug dealer, than the murderer, than the whatever. The reality is we're all just as sinful, deeply sinful. And you're one situation away from doing whatever it is you think you can't do anyway. You put yourself in the right situation, and I promise you, each one of us is capable of the unthinkable. We are all deeply sinful, and we have all done nothing to earn God's grace. Remember who you are. When you speak to people, remember that you have done nothing, that you have been rescued by God's grace alone, and therefore speak from a place of grace. The Gentiles recognized who they were. They were nothing. They were just a people that got rescued, and they were glad. And what did they do? They honored the word of the Lord. Look, you're nothing. I'm nothing, right? I don't stand up here and try and teach from my wisdom to the masses. I'm a broken, hot mess of sin and disaster, trying to figure out how to follow Christ just like you. The reality is we have got to remember who we are. So we live in the in-between, right? We, we go back. We live with intentionality. We understand that this won't be pretty. We don't fall in fear. We remember who we are. Let's keep going. So verse 49, then the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. So in spite of this sort of viciousness, in spite of this abusive language, the word of the Lord didn't just spread through that temple, through that city, but through the whole region. Let God do what only God can do. So here's my biggest struggle, one of my biggest struggles with the modern church and the institution of church is our desire for tangible results, quantifiable results. We have a deep desire to justify the things that we do, and so we use corporate strategies and structures to quantify our efforts, numbers, giving, attendance, campuses, things. And we measure those things up against each other. We may, and in lack of those results, you know what we do? We manufacture them. We manufacture results to show culture, even our own Christian subculture most of the time, our own relevancy. We try and manufacture results from the Lord so that we can feel justified in the things that we engage in. But so often, the things that the gospel does are not tangible results. They're life in the in-between. They're 13 years of walking with someone who's an addict. Can't quantify that, right? Now look, I've been a part of the machine. I know how it works. I've watched a, a church go through a, a, a campaign where they proclaimed 800 baptisms in one year. And they got signs, and they put it on the website, and they made videos. But when you really came down to it, right, what they did was they counted baptisms of people that had been baptized other places. And they made them go ahead and qualify those baptisms when they joined, and they counted for themselves. We baptized 800 people. That sounds like 42 I've been a part of churches that counted numbers on Christmas and Easter. We do it in tens. 10, 20, 2,000, right? Because it's our greatest service ever. I've been a part of the self-promotion machine when the pastor writes a book and he creates a shrine to himself in the lobby. I've been a part of churches that have bought thousands and thousands of copies of those books and reported those as purchases. 
so that they can move up the New York Times bestseller list. Why do we do this stuff? Because we are desperate and we want to be relevant. And so we want to manufacture results most often to keep up with each other. And it's heartbreaking. Because explain to me how that works here. Paul and Barnabas are just being faithful and they preach the gospel. What happens? It spreads to the whole region. They didn't do anything. In fact, they were rejected. And we're going to see they get kicked out of town. Let God do what only God can do. I was a part of a, a little group that met a few uh, months or so ago of uh, just pastor friends of mine. And I have a guy who's a pastor in Dallas and his, he's a church planner. And his comment is, I hate being a pastor in the city. Because if you don't have a thousand people, you're completely irrelevant. How in the world do we get to that place as a Christian culture? So what does he do? What is he tempted to do? He's tempted to manufacture his numbers. You know what they quit doing? They quit counting members and started counting attenders, right? Because we may only have 100 and whatever members. Man, we got 400 attenders. So I'll give you the better and bigger number. The reality is, is that we manufacture those things. We've got to be a people to just let God do what God can do. What if for 10 years... For 10 years of your life, you had a neighbor, and you spent three days a week with that neighbor, and you shared the gospel with them, and you loved with them, and you cried with them through their divorce, and you spent time with them, and you lunched with them, and you ate with them, and you shared the gospel time and time again, and you invited them to your church over and over and over again. And then one day, 10 years later, somebody else moves in the neighborhood next door, and they invite them to lunch and to church, and that person gets saved. And they call you the next day and they say, you're not going to believe it. So-and-so, Marcy or whoever, they invited me to church and I accepted Jesus. This church is great and that person is wonderful. Are you bummed or are you excited? Ten years, they get one day. They stole what I had been doing. I loosened her up, you know, whatever. Like, I, you know, I, I got that there. Most of us would be excited, but with a mix of like, well, I've been inviting you to come to church with me for ten years. 10 years, so-and-so just sweeps in and takes you. Results are what we're driven by, right? We've got to let God do what only God can do. So what if you walk with someone for 10 years and they never say yes to Jesus? God will move if you're faithful and living in the in-between. Let's keep going. Let God do what only God can do. So look at verse 50, right? So as the word of the Lord is spreading through the whole region, the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. And they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they expelled them from their region. Trust. Even and especially when things don't make sense. Look, this doesn't make sense, right? I mean, from, our, from an act standpoint, it makes sense, but from our standpoint, it doesn't make sense. Life is happening. People are coming to the Lord. Numbers are growing huge. Things should be happening. God is blessing Paul and Barnabas. They shouldn't be getting kicked out and expelled. People shouldn't be talking bad about them. God's blessing in our life is so often tied to a prosperity picture that says, as long as I have faith, God will bless me. And we equate blessings in terms of comfort. God will bless me to things that fit into my comfort zone. And so when that doesn't happen, you know what the first thing we say is? God must not be present. Or God must not be blessing me. Why am I walking through this difficult thing? God, why is this so hard? Your blessing must not be here. Because we have tied God's blessing to our comfort. We have attached God's blessing to good things that fit into the categories of our life. Right? 
But when it doesn't go according to plan, God is not blessing or God is not absent. And it walks that dangerous road of a prosperity gospel. It says, if I have faith, God will give me what I desire. We've been down this road in Acts. Oftentimes, God's blessing leads to persecution, jail, sometimes even death. The reality is, the reality is God's blessing isn't defined by what fits comfortable. So you might have times in your life where you are doing exactly what God has called you to, where you are being faithful, where you are showing up, where you are speaking into people's lives, where you are doing life with people, and things will go incredibly wrong. Things will make a bad turn. In a Paul and Barnabas case, you'll get kicked out of the whole country. And you are following the Lord. And instead of throwing our hands up in the air saying, God, why is this happening to me? Right? It's in those moments that we trust. Even when things don't go according to my plan. God's ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. God's move is never tied to my comfort. Ever. Sometimes following the Lord will lead us in the exact place that we don't want to go. Sometimes following Jesus will get us kicked out of countries, kicked out of places, kicked out of neighborhoods. Sometimes following Jesus will lead us to simplicity and downsizing and financial despair. Jesus did not die for the American dream. And he did not die for your happiness. We have bought into a propaganda lie in our Christian subculture that says, if I follow the Lord and believe, he will give me the things to make me happy. And it is a lie. I dare you just to read scripture and try and justify that line of thinking. Trust, even and especially when things don't go right. Paul and Barnabas were sent on a missionary journey. In fact, in verse thir- or chapter 13, verse, first few verses, it says the Holy Spirit himself sent them. And we're going to find things that happen to them that are undescribable. Shipwrecks, bit by snakes, starving to death, kicked out of countries, beaten to the point of 39 times, almost death, persecuted, hung, all kinds of things. All because the Lord was blessing them. Redefine your understanding of blessing. Sometimes challenge and difficulty is not because God has withdrawn himself, but because God is pouring himself out. So we've got to trust even in the middle of difficulty. And finally, last one, verse, uh, we'll go to verse 52. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest, and they went on to the next city, which we'll talk about next week. Verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Mission, evangelism, church, life, following Christ is all about restored relationships. A lot of us think that it's about the activity. We think it's about the serving, the feeding, the giving, the doing, the building, the things, the whatever, the whatever, the whatever. The reality is that the gospel at its core is about restored relationships. And not restored relationships to your understanding or to you, but first and foremost, restored relationships to the Lord. Sin and brokenness has ruined humanity in our relationship with God. The gospel at its core is about restoration, that God is restoring things unto himself. The gospel is a message of reconciliation, restoration, and God is restoring relationships with people. Most of us, when we engage in mission or evangelism, we are looking to take our things, our stuff, and we are looking to give you out of our abundance or out of our activity. And we serve and do so that we can feel better about the abundance in our own life. 
and we engage in service nights, and we engage in mission trips where we go and we see and we do and we take pictures. And we serve and we build a house and we remove ourselves from the situation when it's over. And we feel better about loving the least of these. But if you really read what's happening here, if you really read the gospel, the end result of mission and evangelism and gospel and relationships and life in between is about relationships being restored. What happens when Paul and Barnabas leave? The disciples, right? That means the other followers of Christ, the people that got saved, right? They were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Their relationships were restored. And not because Paul and Barnabas were great, but because that's the outcome of true mission and evangelism, is restoration. Most of us are willing to do things for other people. We really are. We're willing to give. We're willing to to hand that. If I said tomorrow or next Sunday we are having a drive, we're having a diaper drive or a food drive or whatever kind of drive it is, and we need to fill this place with whatever that thing is, I guarantee you, with the heartbeat of this church, we would overflow this place with whatever that is. hundred times over, we would probably fill this thing with a thousand rolls of toilet paper. And everybody would be excited because we're going to give toilet paper to people who can't afford toilet paper. But when I ask you to walk the neighborhood to invite the world and to meet them, how many of us stick around? Look, it's not an indictment, all right? It's just a truth. We can give toilet paper. We can do a canned food drive all day long. That's not what's at the heart of the gospel. What's at the heart of the gospel is walking over to somebody's door and knocking on it and asking their name and getting to know them and then coming back the next week and saying, hey, I met you last week. You want to come to church with me? I was walking around and passing out flyers and you said, hey, and I just thought I'd swing back by. But do you know how inconvenient that is and how fear-producing that is? I don't want to be a church that collects things. I don't want to be a church that collects toilet paper and food and redistributes. I want you to know the people that need toilet paper and then go spend time with them. That's what I want to be. I don't want to sanction mission events where we go and do. I want you to organically live in the crevices of your own life. And then come and tell us, I've got this family that needs help. Can you help me get them to church? And the church rallies around because we know them and love them and want to know people. It's all about restored relationships. So there's this, and I'll wrap it up with this. I wrote it down because it's, I can't remember it all. But Alan Hirsch and, uh, and, and Michael Frost wrote a book called The Shaping of Things to Come. And in that book, they redefine the picture of church. It's an older book, but it's still great. And this is what they say. They say the missional church is incarnational, right, meaning that we exist to be born into things, right? So we are, just as Jesus was the incarnation of the gospel, we are that, right? It's not attractional in its ecclesiology. And by incarnational, we mean it does not create sanctified spaces into which unbelievers must come to encounter the gospel. But rather, the missional church disassembles itself and seeps into the cracks and crevices of a society in order to be Christ that don't yet know him. So what he says is this, and what they're saying is this, that the missional church, a church that is truly at the heartbeat of restored relationships, truly at the heartbeat of life in between, is incarnational, means it's relational at its core. It doesn't exist to create sacred, wonderful, amazing spaces by which we invite the world to come here and meet Jesus. But instead, it disassembles itself. It does less of this. And it seeps into the cracks and crevices of culture and of society. Your neighborhoods, your homes, your your co-working, your, your workplaces. 
to become Jesus for those that don't yet know him. Every part of me wants us to be that church. That we decentralize ourselves. That we become less of a movement that draws people here into this space so that you can hear about Jesus. And we spend time in people's homes that don't yet know Jesus. And that's your call. That we decentralize. That instead of trying to be a subculture that says we need 500 services to be relevant. We just say we gather here to hear the word and we go and we try everything that we have to seep into the cracks and crevices of the culture and society to live as Christ. This week, I want to challenge you to live in the in-between. I want to challenge you to be about relationships. I want to challenge you to do something different between now and next Sunday. Don't allow your church life to be bookended by these things. These are just moments where we can gather. But instead, instead, find those moments in the in-between. Go back. Be intentional. Don't be pretty. Don't fall in fear. Let God do what only God can do. Be about restored relationships. Look, this isn't everybody's picture of church. I get it. I get it. But it's who I desperately feel called that we're to be. As we begin to engage in this together, the challenge is this will be our constant, constant call. And it's not just our call. It's a call that Christ follows. Let's pray.